0: This is David Beeson welcoming you to Chapter 84 of A History of England. This is the first episode in 17 to open without William Pitt the Younger as Prime Minister. Coincidentally, 17 was also the number of years since he'd first taken office, though I'm not convinced that he planned his years in power to coincide with my number of episodes. In modern times, the only Prime Ministers to have lasted anything like as long were Margaret Thatcher, with 11 years, and Tony Blair, with 10. When Pitt went, it must have felt like the end of an era. At first, it wasn't even clear whether he'd resigned or not, despite the rumours, since he didn't leave at once but agreed to stay in post until the new government was formed. That was comforting to those made jittery at the prospect of a major upheaval after so many years of stability, such as the stock market. If Pitt was helping put the new government in place, he must have agreed with the choice of his successor and might well help him with his guidance. So just how radical could the change really be? But who was the successor? There were various candidates, such as the bright new character Spencer Percival, who was about to take office as Solicitor General. That's an important, but not top-flight, ministerial position. It was felt to be too early for him to lead a government, and no other candidate bar one was better qualified. There was only one safe pair of hands to take over. You may remember that the previous year, when Pitt had been seriously ill, he'd spent three weeks in the house of a political ally, Henry Addington, the son of Pitt's father's physician, and therefore a childhood friend. Pitt had nurtured his career, getting him named Speaker of the House of Commons. That, of course, is an appointment the House makes, but with the number of supporters Pitt had, anyone he chose was a shoo-in. Addington loved being Speaker. In principle, that's a neutral position. Once a Member of Parliament becomes Speaker... Whatever his, or in one and only one case so far, her, initial political party, the other major parties no longer put up opposing candidates. So the Speaker is re-elected more or less unopposed. The price of this free ride into Parliament is that the Speaker gives up any hope of a further political career. Speakers don't go on to become Ministers, let alone Prime Ministers, which would throw them back into the vortex of party politics. They're assumed to have risen above all that by having, metaphorically, taken a vow of political chastity, or at any rate, neutrality. Addington would prove that rule by being an exception to it. Under pressure from both the King and Pitt, he agreed to take over as Prime Minister. You're surprised that the King and Pitt agreed? Well done! You've been listening and you remember that the whole problem was that the King and Pitt had fallen out. But it was a surprising issue for them to quarrel over. Catholic emancipation? The state of Catholics in either Britain or Ireland had never seemed to matter that much to Pitt in the past. He'd never nailed his colours to that mast. Indeed, one of the reasons Pitt recommended Addington was that he was a known opponent of more rights for Catholics to ensure that at any rate that bone of contention with the king would be gone. To Pitt, Catholic emancipation had simply been an obvious next step after the union of Britain and Ireland. However, he'd met an absolutely immovable resistance from the king, for whom emancipating Catholics was a violation of his coronation oath to defend the Anglican Church. That's even though he'd had legal advice to say that it wasn't. He was sure of it, and he wasn't going to budge. As William Haig argues in his biography of Pitt, it wasn't so much the issue on which he chose to resist Pitt that did the damage, so much as the king's sheer intransigence in resisting him. You'll remember that way back when Pitt was considering a run-at-the-top job, he twice refused the king's offer of it, the second time to intense royal displeasure. He wasn't interested in office for its own sake. He wanted power. And that meant the King recognising that a great deal of the authority his ancestors had wielded had now leaked away to this commoner, this elected member of the lower chamber of Parliament. It was only on the third time of offering that Pitt accepted nomination as Prime Minister, making it clear that he was doing so strictly on his own terms. Now though, 17 years later, he had discovered that there was still a limitation to how far he could push his authority. If the king opposed his prime minister forcefully enough, he could still occasionally get his way. That was too much for a man who'd accepted office only in order to exercise real power. So Pitt resigned. Incidentally, What this also demonstrates is that the authority of the king, much reduced by constitutional evolution, was still a lot greater than it is today. A process of erosion had started, but it had a long way to go. There were no doubt other factors too driving Pitt to resign. After several bad harvests, and with trade limited by war, the economy was in poor shape with widespread disturbances. The war itself was going badly, Pitt had been ill several times and increasingly seriously. Many causes flowed together and turned what had not been a top priority matter, Catholic emancipation, into a trigger for his resignation. For Catholics, of course, it wasn't a minor matter. With Addington in Downing Street, there was no chance of things improving for them they would have to wait another 28 years to win their rights. Even Protestant dissenters would wait only one year less than the Catholics. In the meantime, having been the chief architect of the newly created United Kingdom, Pitt found himself having to step down from its top office within months of its formation. Just for the record, or perhaps the record books, when Pitt resigned in 1801 at 41 years of age, he was still younger than any other Prime Minister has ever been on taking office for the first time. As well as being an opponent of Catholic emancipation, Addington was also less completely identified with the war than Pitt. With the economy going through troubled times and the Second Coalition against France collapsing, there was once more a widespread desire for peace across the country. News of Nelson's victory at Copenhagen and of the defeat of the remaining isolated French forces in Egypt came in soon after Addington took office. Peace with honour was on the cards, and signing the Peace of Amiens in 1802 was one of Addington's major achievements. You may be amused to discover that our old friend Cornwallis reappears at this point. After disaster in America, followed by success in India and Ireland, he now emerged again, this time leading the British delegation to the peace talks. He was under pressure to come up with a deal fast, and as with all hurried negotiations, what he obtained was highly favourable to the other side, in other words, the French. Britain got Trinidad from the Spanish, but, once more, had to hand back Menorca. It hung on to Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka, from the Dutch East India Company, but handed Cape Colony in today's South Africa back to Holland, though with the proviso that it should remain open to all nations. The French agreed to evacuate Naples and the Papal States, as well as Egypt, but Britain agreed to return Malta to the Order of St John that had run it before. These were tough terms, but peace at last was made. On financial matters, Addington also had some success. He abolished the income tax, which had been promised to be only a wartime measure. But when the deteriorating international situation made it necessary for him to introduce it again, he made it payable at source. That doubled the revenue it raised. I've just mentioned the deteriorating international situation. That was Addington's biggest difficulty. The French kept an intimidating presence in the Mediterranean, so Britain was unwilling to abandon Malta after all. Besides, there was no longer a viable order of St John to hand the island back to. Meanwhile, Napoleon, by now sole ruler in France, had himself named President of the Italian Republic in Northern Italy, a clear breach of the terms France had signed in its separate peace with Austria, and which had guaranteed the independence of that republic. It was increasingly clear that peace wasn't going to hold. Nor was it holding between Pitt and Addington. You may remember that in the early years of our century, when the Russian constitution still placed some limitations on the power of the President, Vladimir Putin had to find a way around the provision that restricted anyone to two consecutive terms in the presidency. He engineered the election of Dmitry Medvedev, who promptly appointed him prime minister. No one was fooled, of course. Medvedev was nothing but a cipher and a creation of Putin's who held all real power. At the end of Medvedev's term, Putin took the presidency back. Today, Medvedev is in a senior but not first-rank position in the Moscow hierarchy. Many might have expected something similar to happen with Pitt and Addington. After all, the new Prime Minister owed his good fortune entirely to his predecessor. He had agreed to take advice from Pitt who agreed to provide it. But as time went by, Addington began to grow into the post and to enjoy it. He began to consult other advisers than Pitt and take his own decisions. Had peace lasted, that might have been fine. But what quickly became clear as Europe spiralled back into war was that Addington wasn't a war leader. Pitt took to making outstanding speeches in the Commons once more, fully backing the government when he agreed with it, but lambasting it when he didn't. The problem was that Addington wasn't the political giant that Pitt had been. Many of the ministers of the previous government had refused to serve under him. George Canning, who, as we've heard, may have meant rather more to Pitt than a mere loyal supporter might, put out a couplet on the subject. Pitt is to Addington as London is to Paddington. For those who may not be entirely familiar with the geography of London... Paddington isn't just the station which gave its name to a bear that is now a major Hollywood star. At the end of the 18th century, it was a village that had been absorbed into London, tiny compared to the great city to which it belonged. The pendulum was beginning to swing back Pitt's way, with moves to get him into office again. Even Addington could feel the way things were going, and offered a compromise involving their sharing power. That wasn't going to work. As Pitt's long-time ally, Henry Dundas, Lord Melville, pointed out after a negotiating session on these issues, Pitt was convinced of the absolute necessity there is in the conduct of the affairs of this country that there should be an avowed and real minister possessing the chief weight in council and the principal place in the confidence of the king. In that respect, there can be no rivality or division of power. That power must rest in the person generally called the First Minister, and that minister ought to be the person at the head of the finances. It's a clear statement of how, in the New World emerging at the beginning of the 19th century, the British Prime Minister would operate. Oh dear, I may have misled you. I perhaps suggested too strongly that Pitt's resignation had marked the end of an era. It turned out instead to be only an interruption of an era. Rather, as the Peace of Amiens turned out to be no more than an interlude in a war that had another 12 years to run. In one respect, at least, the war had changed, though. The Peace of Amiens had marked the end of the French Revolutionary Wars, Now, with Napoleon firmly in power, on his own, and enjoying huge authority, we can talk about the Napoleonic Wars at last. When it comes to Britain's first steps in this next phase, the War of the Third Coalition, William Pitt the Younger would be back in charge. Thanks for listening.